Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper, one of your hosts. And I'm the other host, Aaron Maté. How are you, Katie? I'm good. I'm good. How's it going? We have a great show today. We have two great guests, David Talbot and uh, Aaron Good. We're going to talk about the Kennedys. We're going to talk about uh, RFK Jr., the CIA, Ukraine, all sorts of interesting stuff. Yes. Uh, very good guests. Uh, Aaron Good hosts a great podcast called American Exception. And David Talbot is a great historian and journalist who's written about the Dulles brothers and the Kennedy brothers. I realize he has a theme, a little brother's theme. And these brothers are not so righteous. I'll say that. Well, the Dulles ones, especially. No, I think that yes. I think yes. the Kennedys are more righteous than the Dulles. Hot take. He would certainly agree with you. Yes. Yeah. And uh, yeah, but a lot of fascinating history and we get into it. We also didn't talk about this, but it's public information that David Talbot's son is the writer of one of your favorite movies, Aaron. That's right. Yeah, you told me this, that his son wrote The Last Black Man in San Francisco, which is about gentrification and you know how San Francisco pushed out black families. And it's such a good movie. And, yeah, I have to see it. I still haven't seen it. Oh, my God. It's such a good movie. And make sure that you join our Substack or our locals. That's usefulidiots.substack.com or usefulidiots.locals.com. Also, rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcast. And also subscribe to us on YouTube and Rumble. And not only do you get extended interviews, so today you'll get to hear us talking about Ukraine with our guests, but you also get this great segment called Thursday Throwdown, your midweek dose of media madness, where we react to very thought-provoking clips from the news. So much madness. So should we get to the four basic food groups? Democrats suck, Republicans suck. Isn't that weird? Isn't that terrible? Yes. What do we have for Democrats suck? So for Democrats suck, we have a story about right to repair. Do you know what right to repair is, Aaron? No, but okay. I wouldn't be very good at it because I'm not good at repairing things. Yeah, me neither. So yeah. right to repair is basically uh, a way for people, and I'm a non-driver, as people probably know, we've talked about this before, but it's a way for people to repair their cars through dealers or th themselves without having to go to the source, without having to go to the car company. So it makes repairing your car much more affordable. Um, and it makes it just uh, a much more manageable thing to do. And in the past, Biden came out for uh, right to repair. And what right to repair does is that it specifies that manufacturers going wireless must maintain owner's access to the onboard diagnostic system port or the OBD. But it looks like Biden has actually caved to the car industry's lobbying and uh, it's killed your right to access wireless OBD, citing hacking concerns. So this is not a good new piece of news, uh, not good news for people who own their cars, who uh, rent cars, really just not good for car, car driving people in general. But, you know, I used to think, I remember that someone wrote to me on the Katie Halper show, I think in the comments, and they were like, Katie, you really should do a story on right to repair. And for some reason, I thought that was about, I'm not kidding, I thought it was about circumcision. I thought it was like an ant, part of the anti-circumcision movement, because mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. Andrew Yang was talking about that. He's like a tactilist or something, the, the movement that's against circumcision. Mm -hmm. And I really thought for some reason that that meant some kind of post-circumcision surgery. But it was just about cars. Well, two equally uh, important components. Uh, yeah. Of equipment. Yeah. So Biden's selling out the right to repair 
car movement, but TBD on how he feels about circumcision. Exactly. That will be an important campaign issue that I'm sure he'll be grilled on. Yeah, we'll see if he has any skin in the game. Moo. <laughs> All right. For Republicans suck, let's turn to Chris Christie, who recently threw his hat into the ring for the Republican nomination. We're running huge deficits, and we need to deal with Social Security because 2034, 24% benefit cut. There are millions of people in this country. You won't talk about won't that survive. if you're the nominee. You, of course I will. I'm talking about it right now. The fact is we have to look at things like means testing for yep. the very wealthy, don't need to get Social Security. And secondly, for people in their 30s and 40s, we need to consider you know, raising the retirement age. They'll have plenty of time to plan for that. Not for guys like me who are 60, but for people in their 30s or 40s, when you have time through your 401k and your IRA to plan for that, we need to give them the time to do that. So Chris wow. Christie's saying, hey, I'm I'm retiring on time. Like I, I'm out. Like I'm in my 60s. When when my time is is up, I'm I'm out. But you guys, young guys in your 30s and 40s, you have time to prepare for the fact that we're gonna raise your retirement age. And yeah, sorry, you're out of luck. Well, it's also pretty newsworthy that he wants to uh, means test Social Security and is saying that wealthy people don't need Social Security. Uh, as people probably know, or they may not know, but one of the best ways to uh, keep robust programs is to make them not means tested. As we all remember, there was the hysteria about welfare queens. There's a reason that there was never any hysteria about Social Security queens, and that's because it's much harder to stigmatize programs when they are uh, universal as opposed to means tested. So that's a scary thing that he's considering means testing uh, Social Security. Of course, it never occurs to any of these people just to cut the Pentagon budget, right. which is obscene. And that has to be unscathed. But so-called entitlement, which is basically means keeping people alive, that is always on the table. Right. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. So for Isn't That Weird, we have a very interesting uh, story. Uh, breaking news from very important news site TMZ. Uh, bidet doors and more from former home selling on eBay. If you've ever wanted to use the same bidet Jay-Z and Beyonce perhaps did, look no further because unique items from one of their swanky former homes have made their way to eBay. Eric from Eric's Architectural Salvage LA tells TMZ he has some sweet items on the site, all from a pad they rented. In addition to the bidet, which has an asking price of $2,400. Eric selling some sconces, exterior lights, and a huge arched metal door frame. So uh, $2,400 for a bidet. I feel like that's kind of affordable if you're a big Beyonce and Jay-Z fan. It's a way to get some intimate access to their to them. Definitely very intimate. Yeah, I mean that's that's a that's a very expensive bidet. I don't know how much a bidet costs, but I imagine your average bidet is not retailing for over two thousand dollars right but you're what you're paying for is the jay-z beyonce bidet yeah, not just a right. bidet bidet but a beyonce bidet you know they have they are pioneers so this could be a new thing now where you can buy the bidets of celebs you like yeah you know, the rich and famous you know, 
capitalism's great. You know, under communism or socialism, you wouldn't be able to buy bidets of famous people for $2,400. So enjoy your freedom, everybody. These colors don't bleed. Okay, so if isn't that terrible, check out this headline from the Daily Mail. Swollen eyes, a hunchback, and claw-like hands, what remote workers will look like in 2100. And for people just listening, here is a really scary picture of an AI-generated woman with a hunchback looking very unhealthy. And this apparently is the image of what people who work from home are going to be looking like over the next uh, decades. And it's, it's quite scary. Now, on Twitter, some readers added some context. And this comes from not like a scientific study, but just an office furniture company that wants you to buy their office furniture. And basically what they're trying to say is if you don't get proper ergonomic uh, furniture, you're going to look like that. Right. And uh, so that is not a scientific-based AI generation. That is just one office furniture company's really clever marketing, I guess, because it works. It I, works. I'm scared enough by that image to to go, uh, you know, as ergonomic as possible. That woman, apparently her name is Anna. We do yeah. not want to look like Anna. But also, this also could be, a, I was thinking like a propaganda ploy by big commute, you know, like the, the, the commuter lobby that wants us to be in our cars or on subways, that wants us to go into other people, all the bosses that want us to go into work. Right. This really could just be a, a psyop by them to convince people right. that if they, if they continue to, you know, luxuriate and work from home, they're going to turn into basically, uh, you know, disheveled human beings. And disheveled, so, claw-like, claw-bearing, yeah, claw yeah. hunchbacked yes. human beings. Yeah. yeah. Maybe you can get an ergonomic bidet. You can work from your bidet. Y'all, I, I'd hate to see the AI of someone who doesn't have an ergonomic bidet. That could be... Uh, be terrible, yeah. That'd be, that'd be even scarier. Yeah. All righty. Should we get into our interview? Let's do it. So excited to have joining us David Talbot, a writer and journalist. He's the founder and former editor of Salon. Before that, he was a journalist with Mother Jones, and he's the author of several books, including Brothers, The Hidden History of the Kennedy Years, and The Devil's Chessboard, Alan Dulles, The CIA, and The Rise of America's Secret Government. We're also going to be joined by Aaron Good, historian and political scientist. He's the author of American Exception, Empire and the Deep State, and the host of the American Exception podcast. All right, let's go to David Talbot and Aaron Good. Thank you so much for joining David and Aaron, not Aaron Mate. Well, thank you, Aaron Mate, too, but Aaron Good. Good to be Uh, here. Aaron Mate has to be here, so I'm not going to thank him as profusely as I thank Aaron Good. But um, we're so excited to be talking to you about the historical kind of context for today's present moment, ranging from uh, RFK's presidential run to really the deep state. Uh, What do you think the most important pieces of the historic record are in terms of, in order to understand where we find ourselves today, especially drawing on the Kennedy legacy and Alan Dulles? Yeah, well, Aaron Good wrote a book about it, a very good book, which I recommend. And uh, this has been my subject for many years, as you know, power in America. Uh, I think it's largely hidden from uh, most citizens, but I think we've gotten to the point now where we've been lied to for so long that people are really pissed off, and uh, both on the right and the left, maybe more on the right, and they want the truth. 
and they're looking for candidates for public figures who will speak the truth to them. They've been lied to for so long, whether it's the Vietnam War, about the weapons of mass destruction, about the Kennedy assassinations, about the assassination of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. One major event after the other, we've been lied to. And we want the truth. Yeah, I would say that David's work on Alan Dulles and the deep state of the U.S. is really an amazing piece that tells the story of post-war, the post-war U.S. empire through uh, a close look at a, a very sinister and, and crucial operator within that system, a real technician and a manager of the system on behalf of very rich and powerful people. And I think that's a it's a really fascinating way to learn about about history through a sort of biographical you know, way of, of, of tracing this guy's insane path that he, that he took and where he steered this country. And it's a part of the bigger story of how corporate power uh, during, at the time of the New Deal, the most progressive, uh, you know, uh, regime in, in or administration in U.S. history, they allowed these foreign policy uh, emissaries of Wall Street, you know, uh, the Council on Foreign Relations, to plot out a U.S. empire to contrive ideas like the CIA and its covert operations arm that would uh, be able to act deniably to uh, be the secret police for American corporations around the world. And that this whole process has been driven by uh, corporate greed and it's created this enormously wealthy class of individuals whose power has been able to undermine every democratic check on uh, you know, despotism that had that had arisen through the progressive era and through the new deal and so on that these these forces have misruled the world much of the world they've managed western imperialism they consolidated it they, they decolonized only to create neocolonialism and this is a process of of imperialism that is unraveling now and there are crimes that were committed along the way like the kennedy assassinations which because they upset powerful consensus that had been reached by the elites, uh, the, those politicians were eliminated. But that power source is now dissipating because the empire is gonna go the way of all empires. And so we're at a crossroads where we have to understand what has happened to us uh, over the last you know, 70 plus years since, since the end of World War II. You know, our, obviously, with RFK's presidential run, the assassination of JFK is back in the in the news in some ways. And I wanted to know if you could share, David, for people who haven't read your book, which I really recommend. I recommend both your books. And David, yours particularly reads like a almost like a a novel. I mean, it's it's really a page turner. You don't feel like you're reading wonky history uh, or journalism, and that's of course a compliment. But um, what do you think people need to know about how Kennedy was killed? I mean, your book doesn't have a, one definitive kind of explanation. It has multiple potential explanations. So what do you think the most important takeaway is from your book on that issue? Yeah, thank you, Katie. And thank you for your comments about uh, the devil's chessboard. I tried to write that book, by the way, in as compelling a way as I could, because I believe that I have a saying, the best story wins, because history is an ongoing argument. And I think that often the people who present the clearest and most convincing uh, uh, story uh, actually do prevail. So um, it was very important that I write that book in a certain way. 
I, I believe that Kennedy, as Aaron Good was saying earlier, President Kennedy, was killed for a reason. He was killed because, as Aaron said, he broke away from the Cold War consensus that ruled this country uh, for so many years. And he was deathly afraid, as Teddy, his brother, Teddy Kennedy, told me, and uh, Ted Sorensen, his speechwriter, told me, uh, JFK was deathly afraid of a nuclear war breaking out stumbling into a nuclear holocaust as we the great powers had stumbled into world war one jfk you know was a student of history so he ran with that in mind that driving him in 1960 and he attempted back channel negotiations with both fidel castro in cuba and nikita khrushchev in the soviet union who are our mortal enemies so he gave this amazing speech some 60 years ago, the peace speech, in which he said, we all breathe the same air, we all cherish our children's future, and we're all mortal. That's an amazing thing for a president to say at the height of the Cold War about our enemy. So he felt that this kind of empathy with uh, the other was very important for the American people and for the people running this country to adopt. And because he embraced this view, because he broke from the Cold War consensus, which was making so much money, by the way, the military industrial complex, which ruled the country, as President Eisenhower called it when he was leading the White House, the military industrial complex was making so much money, wielded so much power, that they felt President Kennedy posed a mortal threat to them. He was talking about peace. He was talking about detente way ahead of its time. He was talking about ending the Cold War, the nuclear doomsday in which I lived and we all lived for so many years, that shadow. And the Dulles brothers, Aaron Good was right, fomented that kind of Cold War thinking as the CIA director, Alan Dulles, during the 1950s under President Eisenhower and for the first year under JFK, and his brother, who was Secretary of State under Eisenhower, uh, John Foster Dulles. It was a tag team. These two brothers wielded enormous power. Uh, and uh, Aaron is right. They came from Wall Street. They ran the most powerful law firm on Wall Street. And then they came to Washington, and they uh, elevated their power there. I think President Kennedy was killed for a reason. The national security state moved against him. Alan Dulles was given the job of orchestrating uh, the coup. Essentially, that was what it was, what happened to Dallas in November 1963. Alan Dulles, though, as Aaron said, reported to people much wealthier and powerful than him. He was not a rogue. He'd been fired from the CIA after the disastrous invasion of Cuba as the Bay of Pigs in 1961. He'd been fired by President Kennedy. He hated President Kennedy. He had every reason to remove him from power, but he did so only with the backing and the support of generals, of people who were wealthier and more powerful than him. He'd always served his clients, both on Wall Street and at CIA, very eagerly and, and very well, he and his brother. So they were not rogues. They didn't kill Kennedy on their own, uh, these people, but they certainly orchestrated. He'd overthrown governments, Alan Dulles, before in the 1950s as CIA director. He knew how to do it. He brought a killing team home to Dallas, and they killed him. And then he got himself appointed, Alan Dulles, to the Warren Commission, 
the top, uh, you know, commission that looked into the crime that investigated the assassination. It really should have been called the Dulles Commission. He was so influential on that uh, body. Uh, Earl Warren had a day job as Supreme Court Chief Justice, uh, and so he was distracted. But Alan Dulles gave all his attention, and he made sure that they pinned the crime on Lee Harvey Oswald, this hapless young man who was a low-level intelligence agent, had been inserted by the CIA into the Soviet Union and brought back with a remarkable ease, even though he was married to a Russian woman, he was not molested by the FBI, by the CIA. He was not thrown in a dungeon uh, like any other person who uh, renounced his citizenship as Lee Harvey Oswald did, would have at the height of the Cold War. He was allowed to operate and he continued to operate and they pinned the crime on him. He said he was a patsy when he was arrested in the Dallas police station. That's what he was. He was a fall guy for the crime. It was a national security operation that removed the president of the United States. As David Crosby said when he was playing with the birds at the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967, you're American citizens. You're entitled to the truth. You know, I have to admit on this topic, I've pretty much only read two sources that are at odds with your account. So my own understanding of this issue is very biased toward that. And that's Chomsky's Rethinking Camelot and Hirsch's The Dark Side of Camelot. I'm very influenced by that and how I think about this issue. So let me put you the counter arguments to the, the notion that Kennedy wanted to end the, the Cold War. So, yes, he does give that famous peace, peace speech in 1963. But after that, he goes to Berlin and delivers one of the most famous anti-communist speeches of all time, where he says, um, ich bin ein uh, Berliner, right? Um, that's after the peace speech. He also... Uh, was still authorizing, even after Bay of Pigs, as I understand it, was still authorizing operations against Castro, uh, even if there was some sort of back channel going on. And then Vietnam as well, it's my understanding that he, despite issuing some sort of order calling for the potential withdrawal of U.S. troops, that that, that, that order was conditioned on the insurgency, a.k.a. the North Vietnamese, uh, being suppressed. So how would you respond to uh, to all that? I'm glad that you raised those questions, Aaron. And when I was writing my book, Brothers, uh, about the Kennedys in the early 2000s, I was also uh, under the influence of Seymour Hirsch and the Dark Side of Camelot and Sam Halpern, who actually I think was one of the main sources for Seymour Hirsch. Sam Halpern, it turns out, was a propagandist for the CIA. And he worked for Dick Helms, who was a high level, who ran the agency for a time. I think the Kennedys were targets of a, a smear campaign after they died, after they were assassinated. And that smear campaign often came from the CIA, often came from sources close to the CIA. And certainly the dark side of Camelot is a result of that, I think, effort, that campaign, uh, Sam Halpern and others. So the Kennedys were portrayed as cold warriors, as playboys, someone who we didn't give a damn about if they got killed. Uh, there's a reason why they were killed, and we should give a damn about the, why the Kennedys were killed. Kennedy was about to withdraw all troops from Vietnam. There's no question about that. He signed a national security order that began that process. He told uh, Robert McNair, his Secretary of Defense, that he intended to withdraw all U.S. troops after he was safely reelected against Barry Goldwater, likely, in 1964. Uh, he knew he couldn't run as a peace uh, 
at Nick then, but he was intending to run as someone who brought nuclear sanity to the world against Barry Goldor, who was very, of course, quite conservative and a cold warrior himself and a hawk. So he did intend to get out of Vietnam, and he turned to Kenny O'Donnell and said, and said so I better, we better make sure, we damn sure that I am reelected in 1964 because he intended to get out of Vietnam. Uh, he'd opened back channels, as I said earlier, both Khrushchev in Moscow and with uh, Castro in Cuba. The raiding parties that he sent in there uh, to Cuba were were dismissed by the CIA as no more than boom and bang. They were uh, public relations efforts to show that he was doing something uh, you know, aggressive about Castro in Cuba. But in reality, as the CIA know, he'd opened peace back channels with Castro in Havana. He sent John Danielle, the uh, French reporter down there, who was meeting with Castro when Kennedy was killed in Dallas and bringing him a peace message from the White House. He uh, had uh, gone to people like Bill Adwood, the close friend, uh, and said that he should talk to Castro as well. He was calling people. Uh, the the journalist, uh, uh, you know, who worked for uh, ABC, Lisa... Lisa Howard. Yes, Lisa Howard. Uh, he sent her down to Havana with the same peace message. He was very concerned about uh, establishing a kind of detente with Castro's regime. The same thing with the Soviet Union. He was sending Norman Cousins, uh, the magazine publisher, uh, and the, using the Pope uh, to uh, speak with Khrushchev. And he was using a back-channeled Georgie Bolshakov, who was a, a, a high-level military intelligence agent who worked in Washington, a uh, Soviet agent. And the Kennedy brothers were using him as a back-channel to also communicate with, Rush, with Russia. Uh, Khrushchev, when he heard that Kennedy had been killed in Dallas, broke down and wept in the Kremlin. Uh, he knew uh, these peace efforts were underway. So as I say, JFK was very committed to peace, was very afraid of a nuclear war breaking out. Uh, and I think that's why the CIA and others, the military, moved against him, because he was a mortal threat to the racket. And the racket was the military-industrial complex. Okay, so on the issue of withdrawing from Vietnam, uh, you know, I, I'm really, I'm really um, interested in this question because it's so historically important. This order that Kennedy gave, which you say was designed to withdraw U.S. troops from Vietnam, are you referring to National Security Action Memorandum Two Six Three? Yes. Is that what it, okay. So the Chomsky point there, um, and again, it's my only source on this. That's, I have to just admit that it's all, it's all I've read. Uh, the Chomsky's point there is that that memorandum of you know calling for a withdrawal of u.s military advisors was premised on the condition that only if the insurgency aka you know the north vietnamese have been suppressed and that you know that the continuation of the war effort is the priority in fact there's a line in there that says quote without impairment of the war effort so yes we can withdraw these troops only if and this is a key uh provision if the North Vietnamese have been sufficiently defeated and our client in South Vietnam has sufficient control. That's the char that's the Chomsky argument about so against how that. people like you interpret. Yeah. And you mentioned his speech in Berlin, which which I agree was very bellicose. So JFK had a tendency to straddle uh, when it came to the Cold War rhetoric. 
And he knew he if he talked simply peace all the time, he was going to be perceived as weak, as an Adlai Stevenson idealist. He'd be a beautiful loser. The Kennedys were not beautiful losers. They knew how to win politically. So sometimes he talked tough. It's true. And as president, you do want to talk tough sometimes with your uh, people opposed to you. And But behind the scenes, that's important. Now, Noam Chomsky, I have great respect for. But he's one of those academics who does all the documentaries, as all he does. He doesn't talk to human beings. Mm-hmm. I interviewed Robert McNair. I talked to him on more than one occasion. Robert McNair was going to horse's mouth. He's the Secretary of Defense. Yeah. He had every reason to lie to me, to tell me because he served Lyndon Johnson also very loyally during the Vietnam War, that there was no difference between Kennedy and Johnson. McNamara had every reason to tell me that. He didn't. He told me the opposite. He told me that JFK was determined to get out of Vietnam. That was the Secretary of Defense. Did Dom Chompy speak to McNamara? Did he get that from the horse's mouth? I did, and I did it on tape. I have it. So McNamara called me when that book came out, Brothers, and said, I got it right. Hmm. It was not a flattering portrait of McNamara at all in my book. You can read and see. So I believe, and and again, I, I also cite the Kenny O'Donnell book. Uh, he was a close, he was the top political aide to JFK uh, in the White House. He said, that Kennedy intended to get out of Vietnam. He said, so we better make damn sure I'm reelected in 64. There's no doubt in my mind that it was Kennedy's intention. He said the Vietnamese war, it was their job to win. If they couldn't win uh, with our help, then we were gonna get the hell out. Is there any record of McNamara and others who served under Kennedy after his assassination raising their objections to Johnson at his escalation of the war and saying Kennedy wanted to pull out. What are you doing? Is there any record of that? Yes. Danny Ellsberg, who was a military advisor to the Kennedy and Johnson administration, thinks McNamara was a hero in some ways and told me this, Ellsberg. Hmm. He said that uh, Ellsberg intervened, uh, rather McNamara intervened with Johnson and said, do not use nuclear weapons as the military generals want him to in Vietnam. So there's some uh, evidence that McNair played a restraining role on Johnson during those years. But that wasn't my question. My question is, there any is there any evidence that he opposed the es- Johnson's escalation and cited Kennedy's opposition, purported opposition to the war? No, no, no. Wait, no. wait, there is there is that clip of Johnson complaining to McNamara about how you guys were, ta- were talking about withdrawal. And I didn't think that was right. So there is like. Yes. There is Johnson scolding McNamara about that withdrawal business and kind of yes. wagging his finger at him. So there is that on tape. So you have Johnson essentially acknowledging that, yeah, there was, they were taught, they'd been talking about withdrawal and, you know, he it's, opposed that. There so. is evidence of that, but there's some, yes. And, yes. and I would also add that the, the stuff about the, the way that they discuss the planning and the documents and the planning for withdrawal and all of this, they're not saying in the in, in, in Sam 263 when they're talking about the withdrawal and how it's supposed to be carried out, you know, along the lines recommended by the Taylor McNamara report, which was actually written totally by the Kennedy brothers through proxies. But they don't say anything it's like if this does not work, this is only if things are going great. Otherwise, we will stay there indefinitely. They don't say that. It's just that the withdrawal is premised upon, frankly, erroneous 
uh, reports of progress that the military was making. So they're, they're basically saying like, here's how it's going. We're training them up. Everything is going great and success is right around the corner and therefore we will withdraw. And that was the angle that they took because that's what the that, that was the way that they tried to manage the military situation. It was really a Kennedy initiative, but they wanted to get the Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman Maxwell's name on the report along with uh, the Defense Secretary. So it could be like, look, this is the Defense Secretary. This is the Pentagon. This is the JCS. And uh, this is the recommendation and we accept it. But it was really all laid out by Kennedy. He, had constri he contrived this elaborate ruse to basically create a report that was totally determined by him before they even went on their fact-finding tour. And that was the basis for a withdrawal. Like it was actually a whole plotted out course of action to be able to uh, sign those, those get those plans, uh, you know, put in the, put in the record. Let, let me also just say, Aaron, uh, Aaron uh, the other Aaron, uh, that I interviewed Arthur Schlesinger, who was the, the historian uh, and a White House aide, worked very closely with Kennedy. He told me that Kennedy, based on his own experience as a young officer in World War II and his experience with the generals of the Bay of Pigs and so on, did not have great uh, faith in his generals, in his military advisors. And when they urged him uh, the Joint Chiefs and others to expand the war and go into Laos, he said, no, he was not going to do that, President Kennedy. So he resisted military advice again and again throughout his administration. And they wanted him to use missiles, uh, nuclear missiles, during uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. There would have been an all-out nuclear war uh, because we know now uh, McNamara was told us years later at a conference that there were armed nuclear missiles in Cuba at the time ready to uh, you know, point at the U.S. So I may not be here, you may not be here, none of us may here be here if there had been a nuclear holocaust at the time. Oh, yeah. No, I, I am aware that Kennedy had some really hawkish advisors, and uh, it was the deal he reached with uh, Khrushchev that saved humanity. And uh, I'm very grateful for that deal. I just, the Vietnam piece is interesting to me. And look, I guess on that issue on Vietnam, I guess the debate is Kennedy's withdrawal order. Was it unconditional or was it conditions based? And the Chomsky argument is that it was conditions based on crushing the North Vietnamese. Uh, but I guess that's the debate. And I don't have an, an understanding of all the documentation like you guys do, but I just, I just wanted to lay it out that there's, that there's a different perspective. Um, does Chomsky believe the Warren Commission or does he think it was not just uh, I haven't read his book on this. Uh, does he believe the the lone gunman theory? He claims he doesn't care. <laughs> okay. I mean, he, claims, he claims it doesn't matter. And, and that's where I think you guys have, you know, look, it's certainly very strange that 60 years later, we still have not gotten all these documents. Trump promised to release those documents and then he backed down and said and there's he reportedly said that if you had read these documents, then you wouldn't release them either or something. So, I, uh, you know, but what about the... Again, the you know, I have great respect for Noam. I think he did uh, amazing work looking at the American empire, looking how we prosecuted the war in Vietnam, looking at war crimes that this country is guilty of. But he's uh, uh, an academic. And, and, I, and forgive me for saying this, he's done nothing in terms of talking to actual people. He's an academic who works out of his room, and he reads the documents. He read and he like uh, very carefully and very expertly. Uh, he's right about a lot of things. He's wrong that Kennedy was Cold War. 
he's flat out wrong. He's oh, read yeah. the documents wrong. He's talk, He's not talked to people about this. I have. I talked to every living Kennedy advisor uh, back in 2003 and four and five. And so that's what journalists, as I was trained to do, as, as historians should do. They should go talk to people as well as read the documents. Aaron Good, I think, and I have read those documents and I've interviewed the, the, those people and they're still alive. Noam Chomsky hasn't. A lot of the left is wrong about Kennedy. Howard Zinn was wrong. Noam Chomsky is wrong. I.F. Stone was wrong. They're not gods. <laughs> they make mistakes. They made a big one this in this case. And well, I think the I think the counterpoint there would be that you know Kennedy wasn't a god either, and they're you know no, in terms of no, the people no, around him. No, I don't pretend that way. In terms of the people around Kennedy, there might you know it, one could argue that possibly they have an interest in mythologizing him and in whitewashing his history. But I don't. I thought the mob was the original source of the crime against the president. Yeah. I went into the book with a very open mind. I didn't mythologize the Kennedys all. Uh, I, I know about it, Kennedy's personal life. I knew about that Bobby was flawed in his own ways. Uh, so I didn't go in thinking they were saints at all. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I believe they were courageous and they had tried to end the Cold War. And that was a huge kind of effort that they undertook. And that's why they were killed. Uh, they tried to end the Cold War and they were killed as a result. And that's what the American people should understand about this uh, period. Kennedy was trying to, he was, he was in the process of having Hollywood friends make a movie about the dangers of the military overthrowing a president who was moving towards peace and then he's assassinated before the movie can even be released mm. in theaters. I didn't know but that. It was it was, it was months days. away from coming out. I mean, seven days in May. Was, and yeah. on the on the on the on the same time in early October that he signs those orders to uh, you know withdraw from uh, have a gradual a phase withdrawal from Vietnam. There's a an article that appears in a Washington newspaper saying the CIA is totally out of control. Uh, the president can't really handle them. And if president there's ever, a, and if there's president ever, he wrote that article. He wrote that, but there's the Starnes article where, from an unnamed source, where he says, right. he says, if there's ever a coup in the United States, it's going to be from the CIA, and that's a month before Kennedy's assassination. And after uh, it, the assassination, President Truman wrote an op-ed in the New York Times saying the CIA was vile and dangerous and had to be curbed. Uh, so. Alan Dulles, by the way, tried to get the uh, president, ex-president Truman, to retract that, uh, mm. and he wouldn't, um, that uh, op-ed. So uh, I think people in the know, uh, as de Gaulle and France, uh, you know, the, uh, the elite in this country, Nixon and others, knew what had happened in Dallas, knew the truth. I was told that by, uh, by a number of people uh, as I did my research. Uh, in, in, including Don Hewitt at 60 Minutes. They knew the truth, that Kennedy was killed by a conspiracy. And they were they were afraid to report it. That's what essentially what they, uh, I was told. Ben Bradley, who ran the Washington Post, also could have broken the story. Right. I interviewed Ben afterwards. I said, you were Kennedy's uh, best friend in the press. Why didn't you do something? Why didn't you go behind the House Assassinations Committee in the 70s and tell the truth? He said it would have ruined my career. He was honest, at least, uh, Ben Bradley. So these are journalists who caved, unfortunately. Uh, and because the truth has been covered up for so long, the truth about the Kennedys, about Martin Luther King, about the Vietnam War, about the weapons of mass destruction, 
the liberal media told us lies about all of this for years. And Russiagate. And, and I, you know, yeah, sure. that kind of deception, people don't believe anything they're told yes. by authority. And, and uh, belief has eroded in this country. I think we're at a really dangerous place now where people believe anything because they're told lies for so long. What about, uh, you know, uh, RFK has spoken about the assassination of his uncle, JFK. He's spoken less about the assassination of his father, RFK, though he did write an op-ed urging Gavin Newsom to uh, pardon uh, Sirhan Sirhan. Who do you guys think killed RFK? And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. That was really interesting and great to have them on and uh, discuss all these issues with them. You know, I have to say, I don't know who's right in this debate about who JFK really was. As I mentioned, I'm, I'm very influenced by just two sources, Chomsky and Hirsch. But regardless, I think even if the belief that they're promoting is false, like even if their narrative, even if their narrative that Kennedy was anti-deep state and wanted to withdraw from Vietnam and wanted to end the Cold War, even if that's false, I think ultimately... It's one of these cases where like a false belief would still ultimately be a force for good because it still now promotes a very healthy skepticism of the CIA and, and the national security state. And of course, if they're right, then it's uh, even more damning because you have a case where that would mean that a president was assassinated because he was actually challenging power. And, you know, and that's, that's huge. So I don't claim to know who's right. I mean, I, I do have my bias towards the, Chomsky Hirsch point of view, but regardless, it doesn't really matter at this point anyway because it's it's an it's a historical matter, and I do think it's you know like like I said, there are positives to even a belief that in this case, if it's false, uh, it still I think has a has a positive impact on society today because a lot of people believe that JFK was killed by the deep state, and whether that's right that whether that's right or not it at least encourages skepticism of the deep state. Right. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I really like uh, their books, especially like Brothers. Uh, it's, it's it's a real easy read. It's nice when you're reading about history and politics and it doesn't feel like you're reading nonfiction. It feels like you're reading fiction. That's always great. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's the sign of a, of a good writer. And David Talbot, uh, you know, he's very, very accomplished and has um, – done such important work over the years and great to great to meet him and have him on yeah and, and thank you aaron good for facilitating that yes so make sure you join our uh sub stack or our locals community that's usefulidiots.locals.com usefulidiots.substack.com you'll get to see the full extended interview where we talk about bobby kennedy jr as a candidate we talk about Ukraine proxy war we talk about who killed rfk senior the original rfk and of course, we provide you with the very fun Thursday Throwdown, your midweek dose of media madness, where we react to some great cable news clips. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at UsefulIdiotPod and use the hashtag UsefulIdiotsPod. 
Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.